Fantastic. Well, for those, especially if you are new, we're working our way through Scripture, which is very unlike churches these days. Um, but we're going from, from go to woe, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we're having a few breaks. We'll have, actually, we'll have a break uh, for a couple of weeks as we get some guest speakers um, in the next uh, week or so. But we're since April, we've been just ploughing through Scripture and having a great time. At least I've had a great time. But, and we're up to the, the part in, in history where kingdoms divide. I'm going to start running headlong into a minefield, and we'll just see if any go off. How's that? Um, we'll, do, we'll start talking politics today. Anybody up for a politics conversation? Um, wow. Okay, it is a minefield. But let me let me frame what politics is. Politics isn't necessarily government related. Politics is really any any environment where people come together and have to navigate differences of opinion, ideology, preference, all those sorts of things. Where people have to navigate people, there's politics there. I'm in a family, I've got a wife, I have two kids, I have five grandsons. It gets political sometimes, and I never win, but that's understood. Uh, there's workplaces, uh, there's communities, and of course there's legislation and politics. But as we come up into this story, we've gone so far from Genesis 1, and we're now right through into the era of the kings. And kingship is an interesting trending uh, line through scripture. It started off, God was king, and still is. Uh, if anyone doubted that. But God was the established king, everyone understood. At least Adam and Eve did there for at least two chapters. Then we get to Genesis 3, they decided they wanted to be king. Um, and then we see this breakdown of the created order. God progressively invites uh, his people back to become a kingdom of priests. And we saw that in uh, Exodus, particularly at Sinai, there was a direct invitation for the picture of a, a wedding and a betrothal process. I want you to be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests that you would all become, as God's people, co-regents, exercising authority over the planet. And then they basically said no to that, and then we get into the, the period of judges um, and the prophets, uh, where they, it says clearly they basically did what was right in their own eyes. So we, we all decided, we want to be king. We are king. Um, and then we progressed into the end of Samuel, where Saul became king, David was king after him. And essentially what we're talking about, when I, when I talk about the kingdom of humanity, kingdoms in humanity, human kingdoms are authoritarian. That's the, that's the model. It's not the same way God's kingdom is wired. It's an authoritarian model where there's all power held by one person and there's pretty much no accountability there. This person will claim divine right and they'll say, oh, I'm by God or by the gods, little g, I have been made king, I'm in charge. Question that your peril will cost you your head. And that this went on for millennia. But the, the principles we can gain from that, especially as we reflect now on what a king is now, and who's king of my life, because that's where this is all going to end up, is that earthly kings seldom actually build kingdoms. If you notice that, you'll find that the, the term kingdom is quite a rare one in our history. Kingdoms don't stay because kingdom, kings don't stay as kings, they become emperors. There's a, there's a DNA about someone who has not got accountability, who's an absolute ruler, that they, they tend to drift towards aspirationalism and they want to expand their borders. And so these authoritarian kings have this desire for expansion. And so it's said in the time of David, in the springtime when kings go to war, this was the assumption, kings, it was, it was clause 8-1-6, in the springtime you go to war and take over other nations. And so that became the way they did that. And, and, but then by taking over other people groups or assuming control, a kingdom becomes an empire, which is a very different dynamic. Kingdoms evolve into empire unless it's the kingdom of God. 
and so they take over other nation states. So we saw the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Ottoman Empire, and our beloved British Empire that we used to be a part of, which atrophied down to becoming what is now the Commonwealth. So this is the way it tends to roll in, in, in humanity. And the thing about these sorts of kings under the authoritarian model is that kings tend to like, tend to dislike accountability. They don't like the reins being put on them. Now I've got, a, I've got an ounce of leadership in me and I understand the tension that causes. I don't, I don't particularly like the coat you know, of, of constraint either, but I know it's incredibly required and incredibly needed because what have we learned from history? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And so most of the leaders will begin with good motives but will drift into an entitlement that comes with the role and will drift into uh, a lack of accountability. And so there goes often the motives, uh, often the heart goes with that. And this applies to any organisation. We're not just talking now about the, the British Empire or the Romans or so. This, is, this comes home to us, comes home to a church, comes home to your workplace, comes home to your family. Who's in charge? Where's the accountability? And so in the church like ours, for example, or your workplace, we then have boards, we have audits, we have constitutions. Uh, they all provide boundaries and much needed accountability and it keeps the whole thing healthy. And uh, in case you're wondering, we have a great board, uh, very proactive, very intentional. We have uh, audits annually. So we're tired as a drum with all that kind of stuff. Pat does not have free reign, thank God. All right, so we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 12. So we're a fair way in now. And where we're picking up the story is that Solomon, the son of David, David was essentially a good king who drifted and, and got it wrong a few times, but his heart more or less was staying on track with God. Uh, Solomon became king. Solomon started really well, drifted, as we do, without accountability. Um, and left to ourselves, he drifted away from the great start he had with great wisdom and drifted into, into a lot of wilderness. And so what we see is the most undermentioned dynamic in this section of scripture. But it's this man called Jeroboam rises up. And Jeroboam is essentially nobody. He's nobody when it comes to the generational power lines that was coming down through David. Uh, he's just a guy described as a man of good standing. And, uh, and it's the same dynamic as what happened to David. There was Saul, the king, and there was David, a man of God's own heart. And God goes, you're out, you're going to be in. And there's a delay, and then finally he comes in. This is Jeroboam's story. He started exactly the same way. And if we hadn't have had the division of the nation of Israel result from this, his name would have been a lot different to what to, in prominence to what it is today. But he started out fairly well in the beginning. But what happens in, in, uh, in the power base, in the throne room, was Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, he becomes king. And then there's Jeroboam, so it's a pain that their names are so close together, but there's Rehoboam in power, there's Jeroboam who has influence. Because Jeroboam, he's the guy with all the people. He's the power player in church. So there's a guy in charge and then there's a guy in charge. We all know those people. And, and they have influence. And rightly so. Because they've laid their life down for this. They've been highly trusted over a long period of time. They've contributed heavily with their resources. They've earned the right to represent. And so these people come with a lot of influence. So then there's a guy who's got the job and then the people who have the influence. Rehoboam. Jeremiah, and we're about to see what happens when these two things begin to butt heads. But this happens in your workplace, in your churches, in your home, and even in your heart. And it's a classic showdown between positional power and internal influence. One's got a title, 
and will work from the title. And that's the lowest form of leadership is when someone says, you need to do it because I'm telling you to do so. I'm the boss. I'm the boss. As soon as you say, I'm the boss, you know who's not the boss? The boss. As soon as you've got to tell someone to do it because I'm in control here, you're no longer in control. Interesting dynamic. One has actual influence and the ability to do, if required, if pushed hard enough, they'll do a spill. And they'll topple the guy with the job description. The trouble with a spill is nobody wins. And as we see from this story, doesn't matter how right you are, in a spill, no one wins. It's just a spill. It's a division. Things part ways. It may have to happen. It may be God ordained. But in the end, there's no winners in that situation. And so maybe you know this tension. It's in the, what happens in our workplace. Anyone been in a workplace where you've got where the boss is a bit green? Uh, it's my nice way of saying narcissistic. Uh, they're a bit overconfident. They're a bit undersmart. You know, they make the calls because they're the guy in charge or girl in charge. And then we have the staff. Uh, and they love their job. They love the people in their job. They're doing something that matters. They want to be there. There's a lot invested. It's not easy to go from job to job. So they tolerate quite a lot. But there's a tension there between the staff and the person up in charge. And everyone loses in that situation if the person in charge doesn't humble themselves and listen and lead well. So we all know what that's like. But it happens in churches as well. Not this church ever, but <laughs> it hasn't happened. And tell you, as long as my feet point forward, there's going to be authenticity, humility, and accountability in this place. And I know the elders are right behind that. And so the highest authority in this church is God. The second is you. The members have authority. The elders are accountable to you. They're put in place by you. They represent you. I serve the elders. Then the operational team works from under that. And then through the yearly survey, you feedback, the elders review, the staff review, and it's a perfect cycle that allows accountability um, in that system. It's as good as we can do at this point of time anyway. That was free, so I didn't mean that was in my notes. But, and in a church, isn't it difficult because it's your church. This is my home now. These are my people. I'm highly invested. But sometimes you're in a situation where it's just not thriving inside and out. You know, and there's stuff going wrong. And you, you want to just stick your head in a bag and just say, look, I don't want to get involved. Can they just not sort it out? Because this is too hard. We just want to get on with kingdom business. Get us back in clear air. The sort of clear air that we've enjoyed now since we've started. Where we're not, we just don't dive into the little stuff. We, we find common ground, we agree on where we're going, and, and that's where we're going, and it's wonderful. And then you're in that situation when it's tough like that, and I know many of us here have had to navigate that. Do I stay? Do I go? What does God want? What does God want for me? And it's not easy to tell, and so they're very difficult uh, conversations to navigate. But it happens at home as well. It happens in too many homes. Let's bring this thing down. This is Jeroboam and Rehoboam in our house. And it's hard to know sometimes because often there's, well, there's always a degree of residual tension in a family. There's always tension because we're different. We have different, va different values, different priorities, different personalities. And we're pushing and pulling and we, we find a way to get on. But sometimes it's not as it should be. Sometimes it's not healthy. Sometimes there's power being exhibited instead of influence. Sometimes it's just control starts to come in. And you've got to navigate the whole, is this tension or is this just crested over into abuse. And what do I do about that? At what point? You know, because staying or going seems unthinkable. And you get torn in this position of how do I navigate which either way is it becomes an impossible situation. 
This is very real. How do we navigate this difference between power and influence? And so in this, in this situation, Rehoboam gets conflicting advice. At least he asked advice, that's the one thing he did well. But he asked first of his father, Solomon's old advisor. So these guys have been around for a generation, and there's no substitute for experience, let me tell you, of just the, the rough and tumble of life, where experienced people have had to navigate the pain of, of doing dumb things, of, of making a stand when you don't have to, and all that kind of thing. And it says in 1 Kings 12, 7, they replied, if you will be a servant of these people, notice how they bring in servant leadership into a kingdom paradigm. If you will be a servant of these people and serve them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servants. And this is kingdom life. This is the way God wants it. There are leaders. Leaders have to lead. That's the way God's wired them. It doesn't make them any higher than anyone else. Everyone is serving everyone else. This is the way it's supposed to happen. And unless everyone is serving everyone else, the whole thing doesn't work. He didn't like that advice. He goes to his young Turk mates and went through uni with him. They know everything in theory. They've written the paper, the whole deal. And uh, I think they were smoking the wrong thing that day. And he asked their advice. Young men who'd grown up with him replied, These people have sent you. Your father's put a heavy yoke on us. But make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. That's... Do we call that little man syndrome now when someone says that kind of thing? My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. I don't know what he was thinking, but it was something like, I'll tell them who's boss. I need to tell these people who's boss. I need to establish my authority. What he's doing is playing power, not true authority, because there's a difference between power and authority. I can be a policeman. Well, no, I can't. But if I was a policeman, I'd have a gun. My gun is power, I can aim at you and kill you. That's power. Or I can have authority, which comes with the badge. It's laid on me by the government. It's laid on me by how I've been tested and proven to have authority in a situation. When I have true authority, I don't need my gun. It's a different exercise, it's a different type of influence. And these guys start pulling out the gun before they've ever proven that they have authority. And I'm sure Rehoboam and a rush of blood and, a, and a, probably too much wine in his belly at the time, he, he delivers that message. Comes back, I sure showed them. I showed them the difference. And so what we have then is a divided nation. And uh, ten tribes just go very impressed with the speech. Love the fact, clarity, you told us exactly where you're at, whatever we're at. And there was no war. They just voted with their feet. There was no power struggle. They just left. And this is often what so often happens when influence and power collide, and that they simply voted with their feet. At, at one time, there was, there was wars that were going to come on, on a smaller scale, but God spoke directly in the Rehoboam situation and said, mate, you're fighting against God, you better give it away, don't even go to war against these people. So this, we see this incredible situation where God's people divided. There was, so there was no happy ending there. That, that, that didn't end well. Israel went from being a, 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 a global power to never, ever getting that influence back. Uh, and so even now, uh, the state of Israel, as, as influential as it is, it's, it's not the big player that it was back in those days. And so if history tells us anything about this, it's that power politics never works over the long term. Power politics, where you just rule with the power of the gun, doesn't work. In the political sphere, when I'm talking about politics, I'm in the, in the government and the state and federal and local. You try exercising power politics, what happens in Australia? You vote that sucker out. It's democracy, mate. We don't, it's not an empire here. You're out. Say what you like. Feel as good about yourself as you like. You know, you can come in as Campbell Campbell, but you're out, sucker, if you don't consult. 
That's not a statement on whether he's done anything right or wrong. It's just a dynamic, isn't it? See, Christians can be political. Christians should be political, but not necessarily partisan. Can I say it that way? It's not about left or right here. Political is navigating to humanity. Polit- political is, is saying we're representing our people. We're finding common ground. We're bringing godliness into that. And that's not a placard waving abuse session. It's not declaring on Facebook whether I believe in vaccines or not. It's saying I represent and I'm among God's people and I'll bring Christian values into that. And we don't over-spiritualise that. We don't start saying because someone disagrees with me that they're deceived by the devil. That's a spirit stupid. We don't do that. Sometimes we, as Christians, we feel obliged to bring a spiritual argument into something that's not spiritual. Yeah, when this started, I've got to be careful, I'm off script. Take a breath. The elders are taking a breath. In the mid-1800s, I'm a student of church history, so I am qualified to speak in this. This didn't begin until the 1800s. It began in the USA when the Civil War came. Because up until that point, the predominant theology among Christians for end times, eschatology, was that Jesus would come back for a victorious church. The Civil War, because they were convinced that end times were upon them, then the Civil War came and the war was going to hell in a handbasket. And so theology began to get gradually rewritten to emphasise a different eschatology, that Jesus is coming back for a, a faithful remnant who's surviving in the midst of complete chaos because that's what they were looking at. And so spirituality was connected with politics. And this became a core driver in, in the American world where church and state became quite closely related in that sense. And we're still seeing the ramifications of that. And so movements were started that became eschatological. In, talk, in other words, let's focus on end times. Now, they may or may not be correct. I'm not making a judgment on that. But, but here's what really happened in the world. We come to uh, World War I, the beginning of World War I. And a bunch of Christians, well-meaning, God-loving, said, you cannot convince me this is not the beginning of the end time. Look at the whole world. It's gone crazy. And so that influenced politics, politics influenced finance, and influenced armed forces, and millions of people paid a price. The Depression, the Second World War. Again, you try telling an Israelite at the beginning of the Holocaust, this was not Jacob's trouble. And, and it becomes politicised. I was a disciple through the 80s. Mate, Jesus is coming back in 1988. Better get married and have kids now because it's going to be really hard in a few years. I never quite figured out the logic of that. We were coming into what they, we were, we were crystal clear that tribulation was coming, Jesus would come uh, take our people and, and those who didn't believe would be left. So we better have children quick so they can experience that. We weren't putting stuff together too well back in the 80s. I'm not sure what was going on there. But all I'm saying is, we need to be incredibly wise as God's people what we're drawing into an argument and whether that argument needs to be aired and where that needs to be aired. And what's our role? You know, we have a spiritual mandate. And so we need to steward that really well. We need to be a blessing through the most difficult time this generation's seen. We need to steward God's heart through this and bring peace. Bring community and join people back together. Here in the, the message. All right, if I've offended anyone, please forgive me for that. Send me an email, not the elders, I'll take a look. All right. So, power politics never works in the long term. It'll work in the short term. You can control people. Religious leaders are awesome at it. But in, in the government, they'll, they'll vote you out and there'll be a coup. 
in your workplace, good people will leave. Underperforming leaders will be sacked. In the religious world, we have fear, control, manipulation. We've got a whole tool chest they teach us in preaching how we can, we can manipulate the whole scene. But it never brings life. It doesn't work. All it does is bring condemnation and a, and a begrudged conformity. Man, I feel like I'm having a barbecue with sacred cows on it right now. We've got, to, we've got to get real about this sort of thing. Are we manipulating? Are we trying to manipulate our society? Are we trying to manipulate our friends to agree with what I want? Because that is where the Protestant movement came from, and that's why it continues to divide. Part of it, I love it. But, but, but the dynamic is, if I disagree with you, let's talk about what's different, and ultimately we'll, that'll be our reason for division. It can happen in a church, I can be banging on a pulpit. It can happen in your house, where spouses tell another spouse you have to obey. You have to obey, because I've got the power. Your body belongs to me. You might lose, you might win a battle in that moment, but you've lost the war, because you've lost their heart, and the feet are going to follow eventually. That's the way it rolls. And so if you have to remind people who's boss, you're going to soon discover that they're not. So life presents these situations like this, where power versus influence. Sometimes they collide. And power, in a sense, is by the narrow definition of the most unrefined form of leadership, where power is something that's taken or it's inherited. It's given to you, it's not earned. Whereas influence is earned, influence is freely given by those who trust. In leadership, particularly in church leadership right now, lose trust, you may as well resign. You've lost the right to lead. Makes it a challenge because we're imperfect and we do dumb things and we say dumb things. I say dumb things. Sometimes I go home from preaching and I can't believe I actually said that. It's humbling, but we've got feet of play. And if there's one thing I appreciate about this church is just the maturity that we, we have of cutting each other a little bit of slack and saying, we don't want you meant that, that's all right. So anyway, we get this situation and, and there's a... The influencer who comes from culture and the power player who comes from control and, and the influencers representing that culture. There's an old axiom in business that says the culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it always does. And Rhea Bottom, he, he came and told them the strategy. Here's the way it's going to be. Felt very good about himself. The culture just goes, well, what? Just goes and does what it's going to do. And many a pastor has died on the hill of their, of their new vision. Many a husband has lost their family while demanding wives obey them in submission. See, if you resort to control, it's just highlighting the fact you've lost moral authority. We shouldn't have to do that. And so the result in this situation was a divided kingdom. Nobody wins. Nobody won, and it's pretty much that to the day. Israel never really got a godly king, interestingly. Israel under Jeroboam picked off, but if you follow the uh, chronological order of that, there wasn't one good king ever to be had in Israel after that. In Judah, funnily enough, Rehoboam picked the whole deal off, but at least they had one in three kings was reasonable, and we saw some great movements come through there. But in the end, it never came back to power. So that's politics, that's external, that's all the stuff. You've probably got names and faces and people you, you think you can relate to and all that, but I want to invert this now and just bring it back to find yourself in this story. Because a divided nation, all that represents is a divided heart. And all of us can suffer very quickly from a divided heart, just as much as they did. Jesus said, a house divided against itself 
won't stand. Sometimes we feel like that on the inside. It's like our flesh is Rehoboam. Our flesh seems to have all the power. The flesh has got this loud voice. It controls us too often. It, and we bow to its will and we say we have no choice and we're slaves to what our flesh tells us to do. And we've given up fighting. But Romans 6.17 says we are slaves to the one we obey. And so we willingly, we willingly come under the voice of the Rehoboam in our life. The power, the flesh, the addictions, the personality, the ambitions, the fears, the brokenness, the distrust, the jealousy and the pain. And that's Rehoboam. That's power that's got no real influence. It just looks like it does. And it's trying to tell you what to do. Trying to tell me what to do. But the power is hollow. It's like a king like Rehoboam. He's a dead man walking. It's shouting orders we don't have to obey. Because there's a greater influencer in the house. In the house. Influence, influencer with a capital I. The Holy Spirit who has all the power. Represents the culture of the real kingdom. He's the one who has all the real power. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom is righteousness, peace and joy found in the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's found in you. Have you got a divided heart today? Are you feeling like you're at war with yourself or have you even given up on the war? Do you feel like this thing's inevitable, this voice never shuts up, it never stops? I'm fighting in this tension. Am I ever going to win the day? But the influencer is there. You can win. And you can tell when you're living in this divided state. And I don't come here with a, with a heavy hand on a pulpit here because I know all of us, unless your name is Jesus, you're going to be suffering from this or managing this at some level. Our Sunday, our passions for God and receiving His Word and singing His praise, but our Monday, on Monday our passion converts to the next win and all the stuff that consumes us. On Sunday we know that God's for us and nothing can be against us. Woo! On Monday we fear again. We struggle with trust again. On Sunday, I repent. On Monday, I do it all again. That's an divided heart. That's what it feels like. We're all there. Some will. And who amongst us has been grappling with that? There's all these subtle indicators that can tell you my heart is for God, but it's all not quite there yet. You ask yourself, how much of what I have actually belongs to God? The problem's not the answer to that. The problem's the question. It's an indicator of a heart that's not owned by the kingdom yet. Or that we pray for peace, but we choose to hang on to anger and resentment as if we've got a right to it because the powerful voice tells us we can't let it go. Or we're told that God's grace is sufficient for us, but we fuel a longing for all sorts of other things because we feel it's our right to long for relationships and money and, and all the other things that matter to us more than this grace that is sufficient. And so most of us know what it's like to do this. We sit on the, on the edge of, of giving in to this loud voice of false power. Sometimes we crest over. Sometimes we give up. Because this thing never seems to stay quiet. We go, well, there's no other option. It seems inevitable that I'm going to lose. I'm going to give in to this voice. But Jesus never compromised on this. You know, It's almost like we all understand we have fear that we manage in our life. But never once does Scripture condone it. Never once does it say, oh, it's okay if you have it. I understand this. No, stop. Stop. It's a kingdom or it's empire. What are we living? And he does the same with this, this issue. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the other and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And let me take it beyond that. It's, almost, it's, it's saying you can't serve God and anything. You can't serve fear. You can't serve the right to judgment. You can't own that and say, I'm fully in the kingdom. You can't. It's, it's God or it's nothing. 
tough call knowing the reality of that stupid voice that never shuts up. But we've got to decide, who am I going to surrender to? Who am I going to obey? The power or the influence? So Rehoboam in our life tries sitting boldly on the historic throne of your life and saying, I'll show you who's boss. He's saying, I've always been here. I have a right to be here. I'm never going away. But God has overthrown that king. He's overthrown in our life. There's a greater territory that belongs to the spirit. Even in our political story, there's ten tribes and there's two. And it's almost like that in our life. There's a, a ten tribes of influence in our life. But God is in control of all these things, but there's this two. How about we overthrow those two? How about we bring it, the, the kingdom back in our life? Holes, holes. Because I know the big moments come in our life when we choose to come fully under his reign. If we settle, if we settle for the two tribes in our life, we'll never know revival. If we, can, if we find peace with those two tribes, we'll never know the renewal of the Spirit fully in our life. Have you ever noticed, and maybe you haven't, uh, I have because I read on that all the time, but have you ever noticed that revival is always preceded by repentance? It's always preceded by repentance. On a national level, on a city-wide level, if there's a revival that happens, there's, we always say, well, let's pray. Prayer, fantastic. Prayer leads into repentance. It's awareness of God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So maybe our prayer should be for repentance. I don't know. But, and let's not stop praying. Let's pray more. God, I want to see this room full tomorrow night for prayer. Because this stuff matters. Revival matters. But it's got to be through a heart of the kingdom, not a shared kingdom and empire thing. There's a purity of heart that happens. And it's not because our sin is any worse any other day than any other generation. It's because repentance is a decision to turn away from an empire and fully embrace the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom is near. The time is now. Repent and believe. And so repentance of our heart ushers in revival. Do you want revival in your heart? The quickest way to do it is to commit yourself to the kingdom of God. Say, Lord, all kingdom, no empire. I'm not tolerating these two, these two tribes in my life anymore. I'm saying I'm fully yours, God. That's a cry of personal revival. And revival won't come to a city until there's revival in here. And revival in here won't come until there's revival in here. And say, so every finger I point, it's three pointing back. Am I exercising revival right now? That's my battle to fight. I can't fight yours for you. You can't fight mine for me. So the question is, and there's a question without any condemnation, it's a question I have to put it myself. Father, where is my divided heart? Is it divided? What do I need to surrender? What, what tribes do I need to let go and say I'm fully in the kingdom? And what by this empire and this mixed thing? Let's pray about that as a worship team. Father, I just want to thank you that the person with the microphone is not the one convicted of sin. The scriptures are clear. The Holy Spirit alone and only is the one who can convict of sin. So I withdraw any finger pointing from this point. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, you tell us, you show us, if there are areas of our life where it's time to repent, where the kingdom is on offer, and we can repent and trust, repent and believe. Father, help us to have the faith and the grace to, to turn away from the empire, from the power, from the loud voice that threatens control but has no substance behind it. And Lord, help us to live in the freedom and the dedication and the single-minded, laser-like focus of the kingdom only in our life. What does that mean for us, Father? Is there something in the way of that? Because, Lord, I know when you convict of sin, 
There is no condemnation. There is only grace and there is power to reject it and turn to a better thing for the kingdom. So, Father, set us free here this morning. And Lord, we declare, Lord, with one voice that you are the king of every king. And we dedicate ourselves to that cause and that kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, everyone. Thank you very much.